Welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Mike and Ian. And we are rereading our favorite author, Patrick O'Brien's Aubrey Matron books. Ian, we're on the final full volume. Catch us up. Where are we? Where are we headed today? Certainly can, Mike. Last time we were with Stephen, as he proposed to Christine Wood in the marshes of Sierra Leone. She's going to consider it while he's gone, and she's going to visit England. Jack, meanwhile, was suffering from flag sickness, and young Mr. Hansen had won the ship-to-ship boxing tournament. And therefore, Mike, this week we've got a death leading to a surprise promotion, surprise in all senses of the word. We've got an insight into Stephen's ongoing letter to Christine describing the ship's journey heading for Rio. We've got... Lieutenant Harding jinxing the ship, and we explore the doldrums, geographic and emotional. There's a flashback to the United States, there are ship's cats, and there's more on our potential adversary in Chile. So, Mike, let's get into it. Oh, thanks, Ian. Well, I'll tell you, I I got a little pulled up short. We opened the chapter, and Captain Aubrey is reading the Anglican burial rites, as Henry Wantage, master's mate, sewn into his hammock with four round shot at his feet, slides into the sea. I'm thinking, whoa, wait, Wantage? We just got him back? Now he's dead. Well, Jack observes later that these words that he's read so often move him every time, particularly for poor Wantage, who had suffered such a wretched time in Funchal at the, you know, with all the shepherds and his being tortured yeah. and everything. So, uh, I think Jack's feeling like, man, we just got him back and now he's gone. And Jack worries that this midshipman's birth has now been severely diminished. We know he sent a lot of people away. Now he's lost wantage. And he tells Stephen that, you know, there's only one master's mate remaining. And Woodbine, the master, is scarcely fit to stand watch. We remember Woodbine was not feeling well at all. Mm -hmm. So Jack sends for young Mr. Hansen, our boxing champion. Right. And uh, it, it's funny, Mike, I was <laughs> I was momentarily there worried for young Mr. Hansen as we were in the burial, right? I'm not going to say I'm relieved it was wanted, but I'm relieved that Hansen is going to make his step here. It's really fascinating to see Jack doing his, uh, his leadership thing here with Hansen. He tells him that he notices that there's an uncommon amount of sea time against Hansen's name in the ship's books, which makes him legally senior to most of the other people in the berth. Even though this is his first voyage, his supposed uncle, that's the Duke, had put his name on ship's books starting way before he was even born, which is coming a little bit high, but is pretty commonplace from everything we've heard from Jack and from Henage Dundas and everybody else. So taking advantage of that nominal service of Hansen's and I think recognizing as well Hansen's great navigational skills, he decides to appoint him as master's mate. His contemporary, Mr. Daniel, is actually older and maybe more capable, but doesn't have the paper seniority. And uh, even though he, Jack says, Daniel will have enough experience to accept this injustice without bearing Hansen any ill will, 
Hansen's still going to have to take steps to make sure that this doesn't lead to a difficult situation. Jack says he's going to assign Daniel and Hansen to support the master, the, the sick master, Mr. Woodbine, with Hansen taking Wantage's place in the last dog watch of today. And to his credit, I think Hansen is really not sure about where he stands now. He looks confused and embarrassed. He's pretty unhappy. Of course, he says thank you. And Jack does a little bit more leadership by uh, by influence here. He says, tell the birth it is the captain's direct order, even though Hansen and the birth won't like it. Hansen himself then is going to be responsible for giving the birth a feast on the last day of the month, and he can invite the mates across from Ringle. Jack, for his part, is going to give a bottle of wine apiece for the honour of the ship. And Mike, that's a, a really nice deft touch and it, it, it's nice as well. We're going to see this a few more times in the chapter that with a little bit of care, Hansen's privilege and his background and his connections are not having more than an indirect effect here on his progression and how he's seen in the birth at any rate. Yeah, that's a, it's a great point, Ian, because you know, Jack knows that that could be death to Hansen. And we're, we're sort of worried that, uh-oh, this could be like, uh-oh, where this guy's first time sailing and he's now master. What? But yeah. Jack's handling it well. Well, yeah. after Hansen leaves, Jack explains some of the, the method behind his madness to Stephen, saying that now that Hansen has proven himself, you know, the birth is not going to tear him to pieces for being promoted. And that yeah. Daniel, Daniel, this guy who might be aggrieved, but is smart enough to know how things work, holds real authority in the birth, according to Jack, and he won't let them tear Hansen to pieces. So fascinating the way Jack knows his people, even though as captain, he's kind of way above and beyond them. Yeah. He is paying that attention here. Yeah. Well, the birth does murmur about it, but the lower deck is very accepting. And O'Brien explains this saying, you know, they value physical courage even more than the finer points of seamanship. And even with that, the lower deck knows that Mr. Hansen is not lacking in either. So, no. nice. Yeah, especially not with his recent uh, prowess in the boxing ring. Good for Hansen, right? Yeah. Now, it's 10 days out of port, and just as we used to in the old days with Diana, we get to look over the shoulder of Stephen as he's writing this long serial letter to Christine. He's hoping to send this from Rio. He says that, he supposes she would be pleased to see the transformation of this close-packed group of disparate sailors into a tight-knit community aboard a man of war. He talks about the companionship that has formed as Daniel has been teaching Hansen about how to apply maths to navigation. And he's really hopeful that this friendship is going to grow, especially given that it would never have happened for social reasons on land. And Stephen's old egalitarian principles there coming to the fore. And of course, this is an opportunity and an important responsibility, you might even say, for these two young guys, because with Woodbine's health being in bad shape, they've got to try and get to the Northeast Trades so they can stay on the path of this, uh, uh, of this, of this rival ship here. Stephen kind of picks up on this idea of companionship and friendship and different people kind of coming together, saying it would give him the liveliest pleasure if Christine and Bridget were to become friends. And he kind of nudges Christine in the right direction. He says, if Christine gives Bridget even a little notice, she'll find that Bridget can be very, very affectionate, especially now since the Aubrey girls probably have been treating Bridget like an intruder 
and that Sophie's attention to Bridget has excited the girl's jealousy here. So this is really nice, Stephen kind of taking a real nice transition, almost an O'Brien-like transition. Well, speaking of companionship, ah, next yeah, paragraph, Christine, you and Bridget here. Well, Stephen's gone for a while, you know, kind of signs off on the letter. Then we catch right back up. Stephen comes back saying to Christine, wow, you know, the master's health is returning. That, you know, he's describing to her how he's able to keep down food now. And Stephen says he's pretty sure it's due to the ship's great pace. So they've caught these winds. There's this brisk, warm, lively air. There's this great feeling of general satisfaction aboard. And Stephen thinks that's really made the difference. But he says that Woodbine, the master, like other ill-tempered mariners, is, of course, convinced of his own diagnosis. So Stephen doesn't tell him why he thinks he's getting better. The master thinks he's cured himself of the beginning stages of leprosy <laughs> by totally abstaining from salt, alcohol, and tobacco. <laughs> I think you know, Stephen's like, yeah, 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 it's not leprosy that you had. And doing this would not do that. But I'm not going to tell you about it. You know, you believe whatever you want to believe. Uh, but then Stephen goes back to trying to kind of convey to Christine everybody's delight aboard the ship with their present sailing on this make and mend day, especially every time they reach 10 knots. Well, 10 knots is a cracking pace as well. And the crew are all enjoying the day. They're being pursued, though. They're being pursued, as you might say, by a metaphor. (laughs) And in in an actual fact, they're being pursued by a shark. Stephen looks over the taffrail into the wake, and there's this large blue shark that's constantly there. And... He's thinking about this as the lower parts of his mind remain on the subject of uh, Christine, her West African birds, her grace, her frankness, and her singularity. Amen, Stephen. Until the other part of his mind picks up on something else, the sound of a fiddle being tuned. It's Jack, of course. And as Jack starts playing what turns out to be an adagio from a cello suite written by Stephen, we get this moment of happiness. Happiness to hear Jack playing but laced with some sadness that, as the text says here, what he played was so unlike the Jack Aubrey he knew, bold, sanguine, enterprising, with a face made for laughter, or at the very least, for smiling. And we've had this before, I think, Mike, shades of melancholy coming over Jack in his old age. But maybe particularly this is associated with the flag sickness that we were talking about in the previous chapter. And Another little signal as we get into the book here that that all's not okay completely with Jack. Now, Woodbine, the the somewhat recovered Woodbine, comes up and asks Stephen if he's contemplating the the old shark, the fish that's swimming in the the wake here. It's nice that O'Brien, in the way this is written, weaves together the, the old shark and the awareness of Jack in Stephen's mental imagery here. It's a really touching little juxtaposition. Stephen says to Woodbine, then, yes, I am looking at the shark. We know him well because of the scar that we can see just behind his dorsal fin. He suspects, he says, that there are going to be 10 more sharks in the darkness hidden under the hull of the ship and that they'll only show themselves for blood. And maybe, Mike, that invites the comparison with captains, senior captains making their way up the list towards flag rank by dint of the uh, injury and death of the people who are there seeing. Anyhow. The master says, how can they sense blood? And Stephen gives this very nice, concise explanation of how 
Sharks sense and smell and taste things by water passing over their gills. Huh. Maybe if you, if we think if we extend the shark metaphor a bit, maybe that's the idea of all the, you know the, all the indirect senses of politics and intrigue and influence playing a role in someone's naval career. Hmm. Killick shuffles up onto the scene here. He tells Stephen off for not being dressed. He's supposed to be welcoming the captain to the gunroom's dinner. The captain, he says, had changed half an hour before he'd picked up his fiddle to play. Stephen realises the master himself is dressed even while he's standing there talking to him and remembers as well with a bit of a guilty start that Killick had reminded Stephen of all of this at breakfast, but this had all slipped Stephen's mind. And Mike, I think we were about to go and be part of the gunroom dinner, but we're not done with the shark yet, right? No, fascinatingly, you're absolutely right. And we, you know, we got the master and Killick and Stephen all bunched up here. And one of the cook's mates startles them. You know, he comes up carrying two buckets, telling him to make a lane or see the deck in a fucking shambles here. He stops, hands one bucket to Stephen with the cook's respects, and then pours the other over the side, turning the water scarlet. So this is obviously a bunch of blood and guts from down in the cook. Some of it that Stephen's going to you know, be dissecting here and some of it that they're just dumping over. Well, these younger, smaller sharks that Stephen talked about earlier start racing to the surface in this frenzy of greed, O'Brien says, and finding no wounded prey, they, even though they're half his size as a group, turn on the big old king shark and tear him to pieces in barely a minute. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm like you. I'm kind of noticing this juxtaposition of Jack and the old shark, and I'm in my own mind. I'm going, oh my gosh, you know. All right. So if if this is the flag promotion competition here, yeah, no wonder Jack's got flag sickness there. And then in the back of my mind, I also recall Jack writing Sophie, you know, a chapter or so back, and perhaps telling Stephen about how difficult it is sometimes to keep a ship's crew together during peacetime yeah. or when there's no prey about, no, no prizes, no enemy. And that's why they lost so many of their crew in Funchal. So, you know, I keep thinking to myself, Jack could be the old scarred, we know he is, King Shark in a number of ways. And Ian, as you pointed out, a fascinating callback to Treason's Harbor and poor old Mr. Herobedian. Yeah, him as well. Yeah. Which was another kind of shocking there and gone in a minute episode with with sharks again very very nicely written in as a metaphor so are we going to be back in the same tricky shoal waters as treason's harbor or is the shark metaphor going to do some other kind of thing for us here in the story i don't know and neither does killick um killick has got his eye on more immediate problems he carries stephen away to get him ready for this dinner stephen gets shoved into the gun room with a bit of cover from Candish and Jacob, who sort of conceal his late arrival here. Um, everyone's standing around drinking sherry. Now Stephen's there. The dinner can finally begin. Stephen's not really a terribly gregarious member of the company, though. He, he realizes that he's committed this blunder, and that makes him, as the text says, sad, mute, and oppressed. And he, even though he doesn't normally care that much about what people think, he seems a bit weighed down by the social consequences of of him not being great at timekeeping he feels better though after dried pea soup don't we all um and after a few glasses of wine don't we all we all 
he gets called upon then with his surgeon skills to carve a pair of ducks. While he's doing that, he realizes that the first lieutenant, Mr. Harding, is still talking about his invention. He's invented a blacking solution, some kind of oily, enamely, tarry gloop to black and preserve and beautify the yards, the sailing yards of the ship. He says he's heard that Prince William had earned his own flag due to the perfect order in which he had maintained HMS Pegasus. Harding says he blackens his yards like Billio. No play on words intended. Ha 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 ha. Because, of course, Billy is short for William, and the phrase like Billio means, you know, a great deal, or very much, or very intensely. Mike, I, I remember this being a phrase used a lot in my life, certainly with, with British people all the way back to, to my childhood and my parents' generation, like Billio. Sounds like it ought to be a contemporary phrase. Is it, though, really? Well, it's interesting. I have wondered the same thing. And so I kind of went back. Google Angram has it first appearing like in 1890. I, I, I thought, well, O'Brien usually doesn't miss quite that far. But in, in looking at word origins and phrase origins, the first time I could find a reference to it was 1860. So I think O'Brien's, eh, he's, he's pushing a little bit to get it back here in, uh, in, in Harding's mouth at this time in the canon. Indeed, indeed. So Harding is still going on then about his yard blacking compound, for want of a better word. If blackening yards, he says, can earn a man promotion, then perfection in blacking is likely to bring promotion even sooner. Just, I mean, to, to really, really tempt fate here. He says he's impatient for the calm of the doldrums. He can't wait for peaceful, windless conditions so he can get on and get the crew blacking his yards here. If he tried to blacken them now, this black, gloopy stuff would be all over the deck. As he's going along with his enthusiasm here, Harding realises that he's rather lost touch with his audience. And Jack's face, says the text, has assumed a grave, detached expression. So he shuffles his way out of this tricky situation. He passes the decanter, says he's sorry for talking shop so much. One man's hobby horse, he says, can be a sad bore to others. But Mike, uh, I don't know, maybe that's not the whole problem here. No, no, I think I think we'll come back to that here. Well, right, very much. You know, Stephen takes a moment and thinks to himself, you know, I've never seen Harding, such an able and highly respected officer, so affected by the kind of freedom that leads to this kind of rambling going on and on and on that Jack dislikes so. I thought, hmm, interesting. But Harding's, as you say, Ian, Harding's longing for the doldrums was very ill-received. That's perhaps the reason behind the look on Jack's face. There's, there's this talk about the doldrums, and then down below, the crew hears this reported conversation, and they're having a big discussion about it, talking about what the doldrums, you know, remember what times we've run short of water, the sun's beating down, the tar's dripping all around us. And the crew is not happy at all to hear Harding mm-hmm. say this. You know, Joe Place defends Harding saying that, you know, hey, come on. He was drunk when he said this. He didn't mean it. And some of the replies of the others are, you know, we've been just as drunk as we could be, but we've never longed for the doldrums, even when drunk. So I think there's that superstitious tempting of fate here that people were a little worried about. It's funny, isn't it? Um, we're going to come back to the idea of superstition, I think, a few times in this chapter. We skip over then to Stephen's continuing letter to Christine. 
and he's musing on this idea of doldrum or doldrums and he asks her to check one of the dictionaries in her library to get into the etymology now we're going to get to do this on Stephen's behalf and for our own sakes in just a couple of seconds. Stephen says that he understands the concept, having suffered himself from it, especially when the ship had jail fever. Mike, I think that's all the way back in maybe Desolation Island, but really early in the canon when they, when they were becalmed in the doldrums. He remembers the French term for it. He says the French call it le pot au noir, an area, he says, where no sailor in his right mind would ever mock or put to scorn. So something that mariners seem to fear, we then do Christine's job for her and dig into the dictionaries and the thesauruses here. The Oxford Languages Dictionary suggests that doldrum in the singular came first in the written record, possibly based on a Middle English term for a dull, sluggish person, seems to combine the stem or the root of the word dull and the root of the word tantrum, so the plural doldrums follow, building on that. And the correct definition of a doldrum or doldrums is a state or period of inactivity, stagnation, or depression. And Mike, that rings pretty true with what we know is going on with Jack. And then to be more specific about the meteorology of the tropical uh, zones, it describes doldrums as an equatorial region of the Atlantic Ocean with calms, sudden storms, and light unpredictable winds and the french term le pot au noir means the pot in black it's a french name for the same part of the ocean here huh stephen then checks in with mr daniel and mr hansen discovers that they may actually enter the doldrums pretty soon he's excited to reach the doldrums because of all these new creatures he's going to find he's fascinated to see these whimsical barometric readings and he's getting ready to protect the specimens the jellyfish and the coral um, that he thinks he's going to encounter in the doldrums despite the calms. So call me when the wind stops is his message as he departs here. Yeah, well, Hansen takes him true to his word. And in the middle of the night, you know, sometime before dawn, he's trying to shake Stephen awake and is having a really hard time of it. The sun is coming up when he finally gets Stephen on deck. Hansen's kind of told him about this prodigious storm they've gone through and that Stephen slept right through here. And there's still, even with the sun coming up, continuous lightning and a great extent of a white-capped sea. Hanson had also mentioned that there were some birds that had landed in the midst of this on the ship. And Awkward Davis helped Stephen along the man ropes to, to go see these birds near the cutter. But there are no birds. But a bosun's mate, who's kind of helping to lock down the cutter a little bit more, reports that Harding threw the birds over the side because they were brown boobies and that everyone knows how unlucky brown boobies are. So two mm. things happening here. One, I'm thinking, you know, so now Harding's worried about luck in the doldrums. <laughs> here we are. It, you know, we entered it with this horrific thing. And now I'm worried about luck, you know, maybe because I jinxed it. But also, you know, we got this great, as a, a often repeated kind of trope of, of Stephen says, oh, I didn't know that. And the, you know, the bosun's mate started thinking, yeah, you don't know Larbert from Starbird, but we love you anyway. You don't know much. <laughs> <laughs> right. Very good. So I don't quite know whether this is an unusual or an exceptional thing for Stephen. Is he, is he just in his usual, slightly introverted, slightly isolated world away from the uh, superstitions of the crew? Or is this some, something deeper going on here? 
I'm not so sure. Now, the weather eases, but the heat gets really exorbitant. There is tar dripping in black drops on the holy deck, angering the ship's cats beyond description. I can only imagine a cat literally on a hot tin roof, right? A cat on a hot, hot, tarry deck. They're searching for something a bit like coolness, these cats, and they're just not finding it. They usually lay at the end of the wind sails in the sick berth, but even that part of the ship is now as empty of fresh air as it is of patience. The ship is doing a big fat zero, zero knots, zero fathoms, and the smoke and the smell of the galley never leaves them from meal to meal. And Mike, I think there will be other kinds of smell and pollutant that they're going to be sitting in the middle of for a few days to come here. There are small currents that come along and rotate the ship very slowly from time to time, so you never know which way it's going to be pointing. And it's murky and foggy, and the top light right up in the top of the mainmast there sometimes even disappears from view from the deck. So this doesn't sound like a happy place to be in a ship afloat, right? No, no, it doesn't. And I'm, and I'm also thinking back to uh, the last time we heard the top light disappearing in this book was right before they got hit by that oh, ship yes, in the midst right. of not being able to see. Although right now, nobody's making great speed. But in the morning, Jack's thinking, okay, yeah, this is oppressive heat. We're not having a great time of it here. And Jack has the officers rig a swimming bath made out of sails off the side so that the crew can jump in and cool off. You know, even the ones who can't swim per se, they'll, you know, this will be shallow enough. They can get into the water here. Now, Stephen is kind of excited and he's thinking, okay, I need to get my buddy out here moving. So he says, you know, Jack, are you, are you going in? I'll, I'll go in if you do. And Jack says, not in this sea. And the text huh. continues, I was standing at the stern windows when his brethren dealt with our old blue companion. So, boy, O'Brien finally, you know, pulls this knot tight, brings it back. Jack saying, yeah, Jack, who loves to go in and swim, is saying, nope, I'm not going right now. Because he had been standing in the stern window watching those younger sharks tear the old king shark apart. Another suggestion that, you know, Brian's clearly trying to tie the two of these together here. This is Jack with perhaps these smaller, less senior men passing over him, getting a flag that he doesn't. But as is often the case when we're right here in the midst of this, you know, really heavy stuff, the lookout calls sail ho. Three ghostly pyramids of sail drip very slowly across what path surprise possessed. Whoa. If we were in the Saturday movie serials, yeah, (laughs) dumb, dumb, dumb. This is what it would be continued next week. Oh. So if that's that, this does sound awfully like the commercial break time. This sounds like a moment to just stretch your legs and go grab a cup of something. Uh, And as you would say, we'll be right back after these messages from our sponsor. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back from the break. Just before we finished for the break, we had this ghostly vision of a sail not far away in the Merc. But before we get to that point, Um, Let us just bring you up to date on something that we're going to work on here at the Lover's Hole. 
we want to give uh, a big thank you to our listener and Patreon supporter, Anthony Vogel. Thank you, Tony. You reminded us that this is the time of the year when people's thoughts turn to gift buying. And Tony's basically asking, isn't it about time there were some lubber's hole gifting opportunities? Well, we'd been sort of dodging the idea for a little while, but thanks to that prompt, we've done some work on this. And by the time you're listening to this show, we should have a merchandising outlet set up just in time for the holiday season. So that's all thanks to the wonders of the internet and digital marketing and printing on demand. Keep an eye on our social media channels. That's, of course, facebook.com forward slash lovers whole and at whole lovers for the latest in that department. And we'll see if we can find you all some gifts to get each other for the holiday season. Now, Mike, who has shown up in the Merc here? Is it Santa Claus bearing gifts or is it the French bearing something else? Right, right. It turns out actually to be neither. Jack hails across and learns that the ship is the USS Delaware. And, you know, responding to the Delaware's hail, Jack reports that they are his Britannic Majesty's hydrographical vessel surprise. Right. Boy, that's a that's a mouthful and one one we've certainly never heard before. And he asked the Delaware to bear up because the surprise has many of his people bathing over the side. So these ships are coming awfully close together here. All these people are down in this swimming pool. A breath of air parts the gloom and the Delawares, the text says, in their handsome frigate, look down on the Mother Negget's starboard watch of the surprises. Well, thankfully, <laughs> while this is all going on, right seamen on each ship are grabbing booms tipped with swabs to you know, make sure the ships don't get tangled up with each other and don't crush these people in between them here. And it's interesting that the Delaware's captain hollers across. And I wish I could do this in Patrick Tall's accent. Patrick, you know, here I am wishing I could I could do as good an American accent as this British leader. But, <laughs> you know, but it's this it's this northeast accent which I love there. But he says it's improbable that you should remember me, sir. But we dined together with Admiral Cabot when you were visiting Boston. My name is Lodge. And Jack replies, I remember you perfectly, Captain Lodge. And Jack recalls the dinner and sitting next to Lodge's mother at the dinner and says that, you know, I talked with your mother about her parents' house in Dorset, which is close to my house. And Jack says, I hope she's well. And Lodge says, she's very well, that they just celebrated her 85th birthday before sailing. Jack says, 85, that is a great age. And the text says, (laughs) instantly regretting it. And I'm thinking, wait, 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 you know, it's such a great sentiment. Why why is Jack regretting saying 85 is a great age? And I'm thinking, "Mm, maybe this is Jack not wanting to think about his aging and what may or may not happen to him and his career. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Jack invites Captain Lodge and his wardroom to die to board surprise tomorrow, wind and weather permitting. And Captain Lodge agrees if the surprises will dine with them the following day. And then, in a low voice, Lodge asks if he might send his master over to discuss a slight navigational problem. So, got an interesting setup here. For, for Americans, they are masters of British understatement. Yeah, slight, slight navigational challenge, just a little, little tricky little thing. Right, absolutely. 
uh, fascinatingly, I, you know, I was looking at the Patrick O'Brien Muster book, and they point out, and, and I was trying to find out, you know, Lodge, Cabot, or any of these historical characters here. But while no historical characters, the idea of this being an Admiral Cabot that would have been dining with them was a little bit of an anachronism. Uh, Anthony Garrett Brown mentions that it probably would have been a Commodore Cabot since there were no admirals ah. in the U.S. Navy until after the Civil War of the 1860s. So, you ah, know, thank you, point. Anthony Gary Brown. And <laughs> But it doesn't change our story here. No, it doesn't. And then our masters of understatement continue. <laughs> right. Uh, Mr. Understatement himself, the Delaware's master, a man by the name of Wilkins, comes over with the ship's two chronometers and their last few weeks' workings. He seems, as O'Brien describes him to us here, sullen, dogged, and willing to take offence. His function was to explain the problem, and he was most reluctant to do so. Mr. Woodbine, the master here, who, who remember, is on the up here, having, as he thinks, dosed himself out of the worry of having leprosy, settles in down with some rum, confesses a few of his own past problems as a settling master, and Wilkins says, well, I'm sure I'm going to get it right with a couple of lunars, but he says... There ain't no moon, and my captain is most uncommon particular. Woodbine asks then if it's his position, his dead reckoning, that's astray. And Wilkins kind of finally gets round to the truth of the matter. The surprises chronometers are within 50 seconds of each other, which sounds like a long way out. But when you're navigating across the, the Atlantic Ocean, that's, that's, a, that's a useful level of correspondence between the two chronometers. The Delaware's two chronometers, on the other hand, showed a much greater and increasing difference. Uh, Mr. Wilkins says, without a good sighting, he doesn't know which chronometer to trust. They don't want to run into an island or a shoal. Woodbine says, he has a mate who doesn't need a table of logarithms. He keeps them all in his head. He's talking there about midshipman Daniel. And also a youngster who is brighter still. He's talking about Hanson. And he suggests that they invite these two youngsters to review the Delaware's workings from their last fix and try and solve the problem while the two of them take off their coats and sit in the shade of the forecastle. This seems like it's going to work out. And we get a little bit more social time here between Woodbine and Wilkins. And Mike, I have to keep reminding myself that the, these two countries are, are no longer at war, right? So we've got the regular, well, so slight suspicion of each other as rivals, but the regular professional sailors' mutual interest in this stuff. Woodbine then asks Wilkins about their trip round the Horn. There hasn't been too much ice yet, he says. They've never had to ship a bow grace. They haven't had to ship a sort of cushioned ice deflector thing for the uh, front of the boat. Wilkins asks if Woodbine's mate's aide, he's talking about Hanson, is a prize fighter because he's clocked him already. He's noticed his cauliflower ear. No, says Woodbine. He's a gentleman, doesn't despise a little genteel sparring, and goes on to tell Woodbine about this much physically larger reefer from the Polyphemus, who Hansen had beaten, and uh, maybe gilds the lily bit here, saying that the lower deck hands refer to Hansen as the Lion of the Atlas. And Mike, this now gets them on to talking about fights they've seen until finally we get back to the subject in hand, which is chronometers, right? Right. The mates, I, I'm assuming this is Daniel and Hansen, come back and report that the smaller Boston chronometer is dead on. And it agrees with the surprises Earnshaw, a, a particular mm -hmm. kind of chronometer, 
to within five seconds. And Wilkins is still upset, saying, well, I can't trust the ship's navigation to a single chronometer. And an armorer's mate who's highly skilled in metalworking is listening to the conversation. And he points out that the doctor is coming along, doctor who knows a good bit about watches as well, you know, has that famous watch that everybody loves. Well, Stephen stops and sees that they're reflecting on chronometers and calls them those most ingenious of machines. And the armor's mate says, yeah, they're, they're ingenious, but sometimes they can turn fractious. And Stephen says, well, with your great skills, you know, this, this armor's mate who's made so many precision instruments for Stephen, you can certainly just open it up and gently bring it back to its duty. Well, everybody kind of is aghast at this suggestion. And the mate points out that opening the ship's chronometer case is punishable by flogging to death under the Articles of War, and that your pay and your widow's pension are forfeit, and you're buried with no words said over you. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, I can't, you know this is this is pretty, pretty bad. And so uh, both the ship's masters agree. The text says, you mustn't open a chronometer. No, not if it is ever so, flesh on Friday ain't in it. So not only is this capital <laughs> offense, but you know, this is even more important than religious custom here. We're, you know, we're, we're trotting on a holy ground, quite the conversation here. Definitely. There's a certain amount of genteel uh, blackcattling going on here. I don't think it's actually contrary to the Articles of War, nor to the Articles of Faith in the Catholic Catechism, but it just you know, they're, <laughs> they're egging each other on a little bit here. So... Stephen listens to this righteous talk running on for a while until the armorer's mate himself points out a possible solution. It might be permissible for the master, despite custom and regulation, to open the outer case, for example, to wind it, and that maybe in winding it might discover, for example, that the ratchet click has lost a tip and that might be interfering with the accuracy and that you could then recover the broken uh, tip of the uh, ratchet by using a pair of Swiss pliers. Stephen says he's content. Congratulations to the armorer's mate. This sounds like a good solution. Wilkins, the American master, agrees. He's happy that he can take both clocks back and he can shake off the horror of navigating with only one chronometer. As they pack up the clocks again, Wilkins turns to Woodbine and says, do you like to smoke or chew tobacco? And As I read this, Mike, I'm thinking, oh, perhaps he's going to offer a little gift. But it, it turns out that it's an occasion for a bit more description of the conditions that they've been sailing under. Woodbine says, we do, but we're short. We're looking forward to getting to Rio for resupply. Can we then instead have the pleasure of dining with you aboard? And um, Mike, this, this is beginning to make a connection between these two guys. They've agreed that they can't fix the clock. They agree that uh, actually I'm going to have to work with just one of them. I'm going to have to stop averaging them because I know which one works, but perhaps that will allow me to get around the problems of the tip failing, causing the winding. And the odd network of social conundrums and superstitions and rules and bureaucracy that have kind of tied them in a bit of a knot here. And and maybe there's a lesson for us about using our knowledge of rules and, and bureaucracy and overcoming illogical beliefs. What do you think? Right. Let's hope. Let's hope. Well, Wilkins has just said he's glad that he's having the pleasure of dining aboard tomorrow. 
And O'Brien tells us that the ships go on dining back and forth for some time and really enjoying themselves more than would have been expected in this still and sweltering conditions. The Americans tell Jack and his officers about seeing the ASP. You know, this is that ship of Lindsay's, which is being refitted in Rio. So they're gaining some good intelligence. And finally, back in the cabin uh, after another dinner on the Delaware, Jack tells Stephen that Lodge is going to be sending his boats ahead later in the evening when it's darker and cooler, trying to tow them to the east now that he knows their position for sure. So they've been sitting here. I guess Wilkins has been working with his clocks. They've finally gotten this this kind of triangle of uncertainty down to the captain's approval, and, and they're going to be taking off. Well, Stephen tells Jack, that the Delaware's Dr. Evans told him about the success of young Harapath's medical studies and the success of his book. So here we have, you know, kind of yet another face from the past, perhaps making a final appearance in the canon here. And (laughs) as they're about to discuss young Harapath, they're interrupted by an enormous peal of thunder and the crash of rain on deck. And Jack says, well, the Delaware's boat crews are in for a ducking here. Yeah, for sure. And I, I don't know what this means uh, for Lieutenant Harding and his yard blacking either, because this is all about to get a bit stormy here. This downpour is so thick that people can hardly breathe. Naked men, in any case, run to the water butts to replenish the ship with as much water as they can, water that is as clean and as pure as the heavens provide. However, the cats are more angry and more terrified than ever before. And the most austere of them flings herself into Stephen's lap and absolutely can't be comforted. Now, no one can believe that this downpour lasts until dawn. How, they think, can the sky possibly hold all of that water? But finally at dawn, it does stop. And guess what? They see the ringle coming through the dawn towards them, making three to four knots. So happy, happy, happy sighting here. Very, very fortunate to bump into each other like this in the ocean. They note, meanwhile, that the deck is littered with all these bizarre forms of deep sea life, presumably sucked up out of the ocean by a series of water spouts. And Mike, the next person on deck here is Jack. And uh, is he going to play the marine biologist with all the creepy gribblies that have come up from the ocean? I don't think so. Yeah. (laughs) I'm with you, exactly. Jack doesn't stop to look at any of them. He wants them all all cleaned up, and he wants the surprise and the wrinkle out of there immediately on any breeze possible, saying, you know, we're not even stopping for breakfast. Get this cleaned up, and let's get going. Well, Stevens, aghast. He, of course, wants to collect all these specimens. This is what he's been waiting for here. But he finally sneaks a few of them, comes down to the cabin for breakfast once it's all cleaned up, and he can't get any more. And Stephen asks Jack if it would be unlucky to ask where they are, even a vague approximation. So I think Stephen now is sensitized to the fact that, okay, there's a whole lot of stuff about luck and superstition that I'm not on. Let me just, let me brush bro to this. And Jack says, well, you know, we'll know for sure at noon, but I would guess that we're only a week's sailing away from Rio. And Stephen says that he knows that Jack has been up all night and that Jack is eager to inspect the ship, but he wonders when Jack would like to sit down quietly and, as Stephen says, talk about the less physical aspects of our affair. 
Ah, in other words, Stephen is saying, we got to get back to the intelligence mission. If we're almost in Rio, there's some stuff we got to get settled here. Jack yeah. suggests, yeah, after dinner over a private pot of coffee, we'll do this. I'm like, I was really happy to read this because it has seemed, certainly through this book and through a bit of the last book, that Stephen and Jack were living in parallel but related worlds, really, and not coming together as friends that much. And I didn't count back to find out how long is it since they sat down and drank coffee together, never mind playing music together. I don't know how long it is, but it feels like a long time to me as the reader here. The coffee's welcome in any case. Jack says, I had no idea I was so hungry. And we, we get into another nice, familiar old signifier of Stephen and Jack being at ease together. Uh, this is Stephen roasting Jack over the size of his belly. Six mutton chops, he says, is not at all excessive in, in a man of your weight. An abstemious ogre would call it moderation. <laughs> and uh, he sort of muses on the quality of these chops, saying that the Americans had said it came from some favoured state and that Stephen had found these, uh, these chops to be succulent and tender. Mike, I, I, I don't know if we're allowed to speculate. What's, what's the state that produces the nicest chops? Where are we going to get the best mutton? Mutton? I... I don't know. You know, if this was beef, I think I could tell you. <laughs> there you go. Answers on a postcard, please. <laughs> well, that turns out to be a bit of a conversational dead end for Stephen and Jack, just as much as it is for us. So Jack gets Stephen talking about the patients. And they no longer have dysentery to deal with. They do have bumps and bruises and breaks and sprains from the storm. Stephen says everyone's withstood the ship's tumbling reasonably well. He's had three fractures to reset. I have often noticed, he says, that a prolonged and violent blow tends to dispel the megrims. That's, he means cases of de depression or low spirits. And it may well be that the visible approach of death, the immediate horror of the last, may restore a virtuous equilibrium. <laughs> and going, going back to the shark and Jack and... And, you know, thinking about the end of life. I wonder if that remark is actually going to revive Jack's spirits or if it's just going to put him down in the dumps even more. Yeah, so they're, you know, they're sitting there after this dinner of mutton chops and this conversation about life and death and virtuous equilibriums, and Jack calls for coffee. And Killick brings it in with yet another Delaware presence. We've had these mutton chops, perhaps, now that I think about it, from Colorado. <laughs> Although I'm sure some other states... Would, uh, would argue. But now with the coffee, there's Dutch snops sent over from the Delaware. And Jack says, well, I certainly hope the surprise gave the Delaware something. And in a doubtful voice, Stephen says, well, he gave them half a carboy of the tincture of hogweed. Noticing that this doesn't seem to impress Jack, he says it was the very best hogweed, but he says this with even a little less certainty. And Jack says, in, in O'Brien's word, well, may it prosper them. Though yeah. they are little better than Republicans and Democrats, may it prosper them. Amen, says Stephen. And I'm thinking to myself, truer words were never spoken. God help us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> little, little more than Republicans and Democrats. May it prosper them. Right. Please, please, please. <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, wait a minute. Tincture of hogweed here. You know, Ian, can you can you give us anything from Matron's Medicine about the tincture of hogweed? Let's take a look at what we have. This is apparently a, a herb called Cytisus scoparius, or Scottish broom, or Scotch broom. 
allegedly has anti-inflammatory and diuretic properties. This is another one of these cases of a, a herb or a plant that is believed to be helpful, but is actually dangerous in anything like a decent dose. Um, it was once used for heart problems, including fluid retention, including poor circulation, low blood pressure, fast or irregular heartbeat, and a bunch of other weird folk uses. The plant, interestingly, is sometimes known by the name of moonlight. And it's interesting then to dwell on how the next paragraph starts. You are in the moon, brother, said Jack after a while. What are you thinking about? <laughs> and Mike, this is a great little link, impenetrable to most of us who aren't across all of Patrick O'Brien's references. And I'm sure he's having a little chuckle, wondering whether anybody's going to spot the connection here. So Stephen has mentioned to Jack saying Stephen's in the moon. Stephen says, well, this, this thought that was flitting through my mind um, had occurred to me during that last blast of the storm. He's thinking about the transition to a C major passage in the Adagio in this composition of his, thinking that it was out of place. He calls it maybe a little flashy. And remember, this is Stephen who's quite modest about his own playing skills and is increasingly aware as his life goes on of just how much of a virtuoso Jack is at the violin. Jack says, oh, I wouldn't say flashy, but maybe a little out of place. And Stephen thanks him for the observation and says, he's going to leave it out. And I, I, I don't know what this means in relation to C major and Adagio and Suites, but it's a really nice just testing out of the boundary between these two of, as players. And since they haven't sat down and played together for so, so long, Mike, I'm happy to get even the, the mention of music, even if we don't get the actual fact of music. And maybe there's a connection here to the word flashy. You know, this came out in the midst of a storm with lightning. Is there a reference to that here? Is it a reference to the fact that the music is getting livelier? We're about to talk about the intelligence mission, that lots of potential directions that I think this is meant to take us in. Yeah. And, and maybe flashy uh, refers as well to our next character. Stephen turns to the subject of Rio saying that Jack has not told him much about his considered opinion of Sir David Lindsay, who may be of the very first importance to their mission. And he asks if Jack can tell him roughly what to expect of this guy, Lindsay. Jack says that Lindsay fought some credible small ship-to-ship actions. He probably would look to Stephen more like a soldier on land because he's small and he holds himself up quite straight, I guess trying to appear taller. His family has had a baronetcy for a couple of generations living in the North Country or perhaps just in Scotland. Interestingly, Ian, I went back to the Patrick O'Brien Muster book. Anthony Gary Brown suggests that O'Brien may have been taking some of Lord Cochrane's mercenary rivals in South America, such as uh, his fellow Scott Martin Guise or John Tucker Spry as models for Lindsay to complement Cochrane as a model for Jack. Although... The more we learn about Lindsay, and we'll talk about it in a minute, perhaps there's another explanation. What do you think? Well, it's funny. As you, as you read on a pick up the character of Lindsay, being an admired officer and commander of frigates, he's a bit touchy. He's a bit proud. He's a bit paranoid, you might say, about his reputation and what people say about him. So, And, and maybe there's a sliver of the characteristics of the real world Cochrane here. I remember thinking a similar thing when we had Lord Clonfort, who was a bit touchy and a bit vain. And so maybe O'Brien is thinking, you know, well, I put so many of the admirable virtues of Cochrane into Jack Aubrey, and there are some other bits and pieces of Cochrane left lying around, and from time to time, I'll put them into other characters like Clonfort. And maybe, who knows, 
maybe Lindsay as well. Now, Lindsay was a, a, a pretty well-connected person, a member of a noble family, as we said, well-educated, had attended a great English public school, had an uncle who took him aboard ship as a midshipman, albeit a lot older than when Horatio Hansen started serving as a midshipman. He was well-versed in Latin and Greek, and that rings a bell with me with Cochrane as well. Prates so much, it says here, that someone's always sure to interrupt or contradict him, and then he cannot bear this. And again, I, I, so something in my memory of, of Cochrane, or at least his slightly less appealing characteristics, kind of rings true here. But anyway, that, that's enough about the character and the connection to Cochrane. Let, let's dig in a little bit more into the, uh, the, the fictional character of Lindsay for a little bit. Well... Stephen says that surely if Lindsay really can't you know, handle people interrupting him or contradicting him, that must have happened to him often in school. And Jack says, sure, it, I'm sure it did. And I'm sure it happened to him a lot in the midshipman's berth. Here's He's this older guy joining these experienced midshipmen. He says, but once Lindsay was a commissioned officer and had the implied license and freedom that goes with it, the text reads, he was, in fact, extremely quarrelsome, and I do not think anyone went out in the special sense of pistols for two and coffee for one so often as Lindsay. I do not think it increased his reputation for courage, probably the reverse, it yeah. being forced and exaggerated. Yet courage was there without a doubt. You do not board an enemy of equal strength and carrier unless you're tolerably brave. And it... I'm thinking to myself that if he is drawing from some of the other characteristics of Cochrane, here, like Clanford, he's really bumped it up a notch. I, I think I remember reading that Cochrane only went out for a duel once. And yeah. you know, he's saying that Lindsay is somebody that just, you know, at the drop of a hat, he gets offended or something upset, and boom, he's going to do that. So again, we've got to call back to the idea of physical bravery, which has been a theme for the the, the character of Hansen as well. Jack says that this this touchiness coupled with this bit of kind of raw physical courage had almost been the undoing of Lindsay. He'd had a ship sloop that he was in command of and during exercises while his, his other ship, the 28 gun frigate that he was meant to be assigned to was being coppered. And he had let this ship sloop fall badly from her station during one particular moment on blockade. The Admiral had called for Lindsay and given him a scathing reproach, the kind of reproach that we know, Jack Aubrey's sustained a few times in his career. But Lindsay didn't bite his tongue the way that Jack had learned to. He sent the Admiral a challenge in the morning, calling him out, even though he's a superior officer. This is contrary to the rules, and he was taken up, as Jack says, laid by the heels, court-martialed, and dismissed the service. And now we get a little picture of him in his uh, in his life outside of the Navy. And again, Mike, I get a couple of echoes of, of, of Cochrane here. For some time, he ranged up and down, making speeches about injustice and spending a mint of money on lawyers uh, he had inherited. And then he vanished, coming into these parts, as I understand it, with the reputation of one who loved freedom and who had suffered for it. There are a good many English merchants in Chile and the Argentine. Some of them liked having a genuine baronet about, and some of them, and of their South American friends, were all in favour of freedom, so long as it was freedom from Spain. Freedom to shoot your admiral in Hyde Park was another matter, but it was swept along with the general cry of liberty. By the way, this is Stephen asking, does the gentleman speak Spanish? Oh, remarkably well, I am told. 
end of chapter six. <laughs> and it's funny, wow. even though it's a very, I guess, unsympathetic portrait of Lindsay. I don't, I don't think any of Jack's words are meant to make us like or admire Lindsay. I think that that little giveaway at the end there says, Stephen Maturin is sitting back here thinking, hang on a second. This guy's got physical courage. He doesn't mind who he upsets. He wants to talk about liberty. He speaks Spanish. He's a bigger rival to us than we might have first supposed. So a little bit of jeopardy, maybe at the end of the chapter here. What do you think? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. I absolutely agree. You know, it's it's funny, Ian. I've had such conflicting thoughts about this chapter, and I'm I'm having them even more so now. My initial impression was that it was an odd chapter, and it's funny. Before I started rereading this and writing out some of our notes this week, I was reading a debate on one of the Facebook Patrick O'Brien sites about some people talking about how the final books are just not nearly as good as the beginning ones. Some people even saying, you know, I, when I do my circumnavigations, I don't read them. And I thought, you know, you're crazy. You're so underselling O'Brien's capabilities and abilities. And then, you know, I revisited this chapter and thought, well, there's moments when he's certainly not at the peak of his powers, but there are others, as we talked about before, where he's as good as ever before. And my initial impression of this was that this chapter was not one of them. So, Mike, even though that's true, and I think a few of us have found this in general about the, the later books, I'm, st I'm still really, really enjoying this book. I, I think that there are some things to admire, especially the serial letter back to Christine takes us back into the world and the style of Jane Austen. Stephen is the still the avatar for Patrick O'Brien. He's the one whose point of view is there in all the narration and the exposition and the scene setting. We do actually, despite all of the alarms and excursions, we do actually seem to be finally heading to South America. We can we can practically touch it. So yeah, at least in terms of the the the, the rolling on of the story, we're making some progress here. There have been some other interesting developments in the chapter, right? There there have been, and you know, some of one. You know, I'm scratching my head on. So some of them I still love, like I say, but we've got Wantage brought back from the dead just a short while ago, only to die here again, quietly of, of yellow fever, kind of off stage, and we're burying him. And and I'm thinking, you know, you and I talk, perhaps this is to make room in the story for Hanson. And and hopefully we're, we're kind of both relieved saying, maybe we're not going to lose Hanson any minute here. We've been thinking that ever since Hanson was introduced here. Now, we're, we're hearing a great deal about Hanson. We just had the prize fighting win. Jack promoted him. We've got Hanson waking up Stephen for the, you know, going on deck to look at the boobies. We've got the Delaware's master asking about Hanson's prize fighting ability. And I think, oh, cool, we're about to set up a ship-to-ship -ship boxing action with the Delaware. But nope, you know, the question seems to have no real purpose. You know, I felt a little bit the same way. Like, okay, we had this big scene about the ship's chronometers. Yeah. Daniel and Hansen have this problem to solve. And they come back, but the resolution seems to be Stephen and an armorer's mate. We're not really hearing much from Daniel and Hansen. And then I'm thinking that you know, the, the Delaware's master says, well, do you guys like tobacco? And I'm going, oh, cool. It's a setup for a thank you gift. And the, and the, the master says, well, I'm glad I'm going to be dining aboard tomorrow night. Like I might be bringing you a present. Nope, no more tobacco references. Now we do get some <laughs> gifts from the Delaware, but they're kind of like at the end delivered by Killick to Jack and Steven. And I'm kind of scratching my head going, what? 
what? <laughs> this is kind of nice. I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, it's tricky, isn't it? I mean, maybe he's just getting on a bit. And it's a bit like, you know, sit, sitting at Thanksgiving dinner with your elderly uncle who suddenly says, have you ever eaten oysters? And you go, what's with the oysters? And then he changes his subject again to, you know, let's right. talk about golf. So maybe it's a little bit of that, or maybe he's just enjoying the fact that this is a really kind of freewheeling, ongoing conversation between these people, and it doesn't really have to have a structure or a beginning or an end. Huh. And then how come we had this encounter with the Americans? Every time we've met American vessels in the past, they've either been um, rescuers or rivals, right? And this time they were dinner guests with a broken clock. Right. Are we going to see or hear from them again? It did give us this nice chance to hark back to the time in Boston. It did give us that chance to quickly flash back to where Michael Herapath has got to. Was there a point to all of this in this story? Or was it just enjoyable descriptions of people and ships and, and, and character exposition filling the pages? It's difficult, right? Yeah, I, I kind of feel like you know, we're getting these quick glimpses. Oh, we're back with a quick glimpse of Sophie. We're back with a quick referral back to Harapath. And, and it felt a little bit like, you know, sometimes when you're watching the last episode of a long running series and a lot of characters that you haven't seen in a long time, all of a sudden are back for the last episode or two. And it's like, oh, final yeah. bows. That's great. But like you, I'm wondering, uh, now, we know that this is the way O'Brien writes, and it's part of what we love. There are familiar recurring scenes. That's part of his charm. There's the ship's cadence. There's recurring rhythms. We've been to the doldrums before. We've had different things happen there. Some of the description, very similar. And, and here, we've had this nice chance to set up the doldrums and, and, and in comparison to Jack's mood. And we've got this big Harding's jinx, but it seems like, you know, we don't get to play that out much here. You know, we've had no. superstition running in stories before, but we're kind of here and in and out. I love the old shark and Jack. Nice touch, classic O'Brien. Yeah. And maybe, I don't know, like you say, maybe there's some payoffs to come from some of these other encounters from some of this stuff. I don't remember what happens for the rest of the book, so I'm not there yet here. It's but, a it's a but, it's a journey of discovery for all of us, right? <laughs> well, it is, it is, it is. Well, so, so, since we're on this journey of discovery, Mike, we got to the conversation about Lindsay, and maybe that means that we're back on track. Maybe that means that we're genuinely headed, like we've been saying for a while now, to South America. Um, Stephen's been asking Jack, "How soon are we going to get there?" And uh, I think he's expressing the the view of us all that we'd like to get on with this. Maybe this is the book's way of asking Patrick O'Brien, are you ready to get back on the story here or are we going to have a little bit more meandering around the dinner table? Never mind, the writing along the way is still excellent. I think we're both ready to get back into the story here. This Lindsay guy is sounding increasingly like a serious rival, could be a complication to the prospect of our plot line, plot line paying off, perhaps even a deadly one given his predilection for dueling. Mike, I guess there's only one way to find out. What do you say next week to just a little more Patrick O'Brien? I should like that of all things.
Jack invites Captain Lodge and his wardrobe. Wardrobe. <laughs> Sorry, Sam. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I'm reading your Fourth Wing and Iron Flame now, and you know this is not the armoire of. Uh... <laughs> no, it's the occasional yeah. table. Jack <laughs> invites Captain Lodge and his wardrobe to die to board surprise.